Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Amod Lele. Today we'll be talking about a book that's somewhat unusual in Buddhist studies, because in a sense it's a book that's about Buddhist studies as a discipline, as much as being a work of Buddhist studies. And specifically, it's a book about the experiences of its author. This book is Charles Priebisch's An American Buddhist Life, and in it he discusses his experiences being involved in basically the formation of Buddhist studies as a discipline in the U.S., and especially in the study of American Buddhism. And the story is particularly interesting because Priebisch wasn't just involved in establishing the study of American Buddhism as a legitimate field in Buddhist studies. He was also a major part of it, and the story says a lot about his encounters with with major figures both in the development of the study of American Buddhism and in American Buddhism itself, people like Chogyam Trungpa and um, other sort of leading lights in Buddhist studies outside of the field specifically of American Buddhist studies as well. He was present at the creation of a great deal of it. So there's a lot to be learned in this book. And it's a story that's interesting both as one person's personal journey and something worth reading for all of those interested in Buddhist studies as a field. Normally, I would begin uh, the interview process by uh, saying, you know, tell us about yourself, and then say, tell us about the book. But you can't really separate those two in the case of an autobiography. And I think it's a book that's really valuable to, to have because it gives us such an eye into the formation of Buddhist studies in uh, North America in the past 50 years from someone who's been deeply involved in that. So, Chuck, can you start out by giving us maybe the, the short version of the book? Sure. The, I, I wouldn't call it so much an autobiography because that wasn't really the intent. Mm-hmm. The intent was to, to more uh, properly write a memoir of my experiences in Buddhist studies and to be able to comment more on Buddhist studies and the development of that as an academic discipline and and also to talk about the development of American Buddhism uh, both in terms of a religious tradition and an academic discipline. So the book starts out basically with with, uh, a short statement of how it is I got involved in Buddhist studies in the first place which was something that was was totally off the wall for uh, lack of a better way to say it and then it describes my progress through the field um, right on through the beginnings of my teaching career, which started at Penn State in 1971, I and then from remember but, sort of reading that that part where uh, where you were basically sort of hanging out with some some friends, and and they and they said, "Hey, far out, man! Let's take this course and learn about voodoo." That's exact. That's exactly what we did. At, at that point in my life, uh, I had already applied to dental school. It was my senior year in college, and in in accord with my family's wishes, they had wanted me to be, become a healthcare professional of one sort or another, and I did not want to be a doctor because I didn't want to deal with 
death on an everyday situation. So I thought dentistry was safer because you don't kill people. Right. Uh, probably what I didn't realize at that point was that dentists have the highest rate of suicides in all of the healthcare professions, but I, did, I didn't know that then. And uh, I think some beer was involved in, in making the decision to take the first course, but one, once it started, it was, it was fast forward all the way. Right, right. Um, and and uh, so can you, can you give us a, a precy of, of the rest of the book after that? Uh, sure. Well, actually, it, the book is structured in, into two parts. And the first part it really reflects as a memoir and talks about my career in Buddhist studies um, decade by decade, 70s, 80s, 90s, and the first, the first decade of, of this century. And that's significant because, as it turns out, something different was happening in each one of those decades. Mm-hmm. And in, in one of them, in fact, I really didn't do very much Buddhist studies at all. I did studies about the relationship between sport and religion. But then the second half of the book deals with one long chapter on the development of Buddhist studies in, in North America as an academic discipline, and it has one long chapter about the development of the study of American Buddhism, which is a sub-discipline of Buddhist studies that, that I pioneered, and that's where the subtitle of the book comes from, Memoirs of a Modern Dharma Pioneer, because it was very clear that when I first started researching American Buddhism, the person who was chairman of my department of religious studies at Penn State actually told me there was no such thing as American Buddhism. Right. And, and he was Japanese-American, which was even more shocking. So the two parts of the book deal with, um, on the one hand, my personal career, and on the other hand, the development of, of Buddhism in, in, on this continent. Right. Great. And, and how did you come to decide to write a, a memoir of this sort? Okay, that, that's really that's really a, a simple but but easy question. When when I started studying Buddhism, uh, the people who were then uh, pursuing graduate studies in, in Buddhism, most notably at Wisconsin, all read the same things. We read the great books by Thomas W. Rhys Davids, and we read Herman Oldenburg's books, and we read um, Louis Lavalle Poussin, and we read De Mayville and Frau Wallner, and all of these characters. And they were great scholars, and we read their brilliant works, but we didn't know anything about them. We mm. knew absolutely nothing about them as individuals. And we started comparing notes about the people that we were studying with. I was mentored by Richard Robinson, who was an extremely brilliant scholar, maybe, maybe the best Buddhist study scholar in the world at that time, and, and a very unusual, uh, eccentric character. But some of, some of my graduate studies colleagues had studied with Alex Wayman or Leon Hurwitz or, or others, and they didn't write anything about themselves either. So we knew their great work and we knew nothing about them. And to the best of my knowledge, the only person who had ever written a memoir who was well-known in Buddhist studies was Edward Kanza. Mm. And he wrote a, a three-part um, memoir uh, of which the third part has presumably not ever been seen by anyone because it was supposedly so ill-tempered and problematic that he was sure he'd be sued if it was published. Uh, I actually saw a manuscript of it, and he was right. Uh, wow. But the, but the first two parts have been published. So it was my hope that if I did this, maybe others would too. And as far as I know, the only other person from my generation of scholars that's written something similar to this is Jan Willis. I don't know if you know her. Um, I don't think so. She she teaches at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and she wrote a book called Dreaming Me, in which she describes growing up as a young black woman in the South and describes how she came to study Buddhism and the experiences that she had as a, as a black American doing that. And it, it's, a, it's a wonderful book, and, and Jan is an absolutely wonderful scholar and a, and a great colleague. But, but there's a, I started making a list of people from my generation, who, who really were well-known in Buddhist studies. And the, the list is probably 25 or 30 people long of individuals who got PhDs before 1980 mm-hmm. and have gone on to make a mark in Buddhist studies. And I guess it was my hope that if I did this, maybe I could coax them into either writing books about their experiences or maybe even just write a chapter of, of reminiscences about 
what they feel the discipline was like before they came into it, what they feel they added to it, how it's grown or not grown. And I even started fantasizing about maybe getting a series of books that we could call the Generations of Buddhist Studies, in mm. which all, all of the great scholars going on up to present day could each be kind of marshaled into a, one volume for their decade in which they got their Ph.D., and I mean, I think it would be really interesting if we had a book, at least from my generation, that had reminiscences of Robert Elwood and Luis Gomez and Jeffrey Hopkins and Victor Horry and, well, now Leslie Moore, unfortunately, has died, but Robert, Robert Thurman and Frank Reynolds and Stanley Weinstein. These are just absolutely brilliant, brilliant scholars, and I think it would be great fun to read what, what, what they're thinking. So I was hoping that maybe this book would, would twist a few arms in a pleasant way and coax them. Yeah, that. That sounds like a great aim. I'd certainly love to see uh, an edited volume like that. I mean, certainly, I, you know, we... All right, go ahead. I actually tried tried this out on a, on a few of them um, because now we obviously have instant correspondence through email. And I sent notes to a few of them probably who shouldn't be named. And, and the responses ranged all the way from, oh, who would care what I thought, to I think this would be interesting, but it wouldn't be high on my list of things to do. Right. And I think I think that kind of res- reflects sort of a, a a selfless attitude on the part of these people that they really don't want the the discipline to be about them, but rather Buddhism itself. And I, I certainly can understand that. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I suppose they're maybe they're thinking about Anatman and and thinking, well, there's not really a person here writing in the first place. Maybe. Um, and you you. you Speaking of, of not naming names, uh, you know, people who shouldn't be named, one, one of the things that I noticed in the book was that you, you really do kind of name names, and the, the book, the book is, is rather juicy. Um, you, know, you, you describe uh, a number of, of questionable things that uh, certain people in, in the profession have done over, over the years. Um, was it a, a deliberate decision to, to write the book in that way? Did it sort of just come naturally as you were writing the story? I'm, well, let's, let's say there were two versions of the book. Hmm. Uh, so what you're calling is juicy is, is actually the cleaned-up version wow. of the book. Uh, perhaps later on we can talk about John Negri, the publisher from Sumero Books. Uh, but but he, he read the original manuscript, and he was a, a little concerned that it was too explicit. So what, what we decided is that I wouldn't say anything that was overwhelmingly negative about anyone who was still alive. Ah. <laughs> so, so that, that's pretty much much the case. And while I do name some names, there are also some episodes in the book where the the people who did the things I wrote about remained nameless, so it wouldn't put them in an awkward circumstance. And I suppose if if they read the book, they'll they'll know who I mean, and I know who who I meant. But it was better to leave those stories be anonymous. But Buddhist studies is an, it's an interesting discipline, and it's made up of a lot of quirky characters like me who do weird weird things and sometimes not always nice things as colleagues i remember there was uh, one situation where where one of my friends said that he thought that buddhist studies was a discipline that devoured its own young whole and live yeah. and and uh, to some extent i think i think that's true i think it's it's unfortunately the case that there are a lot of people because it's a a small discipline competing for very little pieces of a shrinking pie that are very competitive with one another and are sometimes forced into situations that are less than wonderful. Yeah, and that's that's very sad, but um, at the same time, it it uh, it can make for entertaining reading. And uh, now I I'm, hope so. Now I'm very curious about the the unexpurgated version about what, what must be in there. I mean, it, it sounds like it sounds a lot like the the third volume of Edward Conz's uh, memoirs, well, just, the one that he I, couldn't publish. I, I think it is, and of course, I, I don't think this is just me that knows these stories, but I think it reflects the fact that if you've been in a discipline, whether it's Buddhist studies or some other discipline for a very long time, sooner or later you meet pretty much everybody and you hear pretty much all the stories, and maybe even your witness to a lot of the stories. So I think that stuff just s- sort of accrues to you over the years. And I don't, I don't think that I know any more of the unusual stuff than, than anyone else. I think if you took someone who's been around for a very long time, like Bob Thurman, who's a good example, because um, he's kind of an interesting character, I think Bob 
probably has just an absolute wonderful list of stories. Some would be great, maybe some not so great, but he's been around for a long time and knows everybody. I don't think he'll ever write that, but but it would be interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it would. Uh, you know, I'd be interested to hear about you know his daughter and the Dalai Lama and all the sorts of things in in his life as well. Um, sure. Yeah, I guess, I, and I, I I'm sure that you know um, anybody who's who's been in the discipline is is going to be privy to to those sorts of stories. I mean, I've I've witnessed you know one or two uh, questionable things um, as well, but I, I think what's What's maybe unusual here is that you you did commit uh, at least some of them to print, um, which is not a, a typical move. No, I guess not. So, but uh, it's one. It's anyway, I thought I think was one of the things that um, you know, made the the book an intriguing read. You sort of see a, a side of of people that's very different from their their public faces. Well, I think part of that too stems from the fact that that I spent as much time as I did studying with Richard Robinson. Uh, I worked for two two years as his research assistant, and for whatever his reasons, and of course because he died so early, we'll we'll never know. He it was almost as if he adopted me as a, a kind of a, a spiritual and academic son, and we spent so much time together that, and he knew so so much of everything and everybody that he just talked a lot and hmm. and told a, a lot of stories. And I guess I just got a chance to hear more of them than other people because we did spend that time together. And I think to some extent that really colored a lot of, of how I went about my career trying to do the same thing because he was, he was such a miraculous mentor. Yeah, I can, I can see that. That's but, certainly... but quirky. And he had, he had his share of foibles as well. Yeah, I'm I'm sure he did, and well, something I remember from my my grad school experience was, you know, the various professors that I worked with, and and the amount that each one of them was was willing to share. Relatively, some some were willing to uh, spill considerably more dirt than than others were, and I will definitely not name names here. But uh, well, you did you did your PhD at Harvard? I right? did, yes. And did you work with Nagatomi? Um, I did not. He was gone by the the time I got there. I uh, I worked with Paramal Patil and uh, and Janet Gatso, um, and then also. Okay. Um, okay. That, I forgot how young you were. Yes. Uh, but but Mas Nagatomi was very much the same. I know there were times early in my career where I used to be able to get a small amount of of funding from my university to go and spend spring break in Cambridge and read Sanskrit texts with Mas. And one of the things we would we would often do is we would sit in his office all morning and read Sanskrit. He actually would read Vinaya text with me, which which absolutely astounded me because that was not something that people would imagine that he knew very well. Hmm. But 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 he 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 knew uh, a lot more than I knew, and and it was a great experience for me. And then often in the afternoons when he had his his own obligations to fulfill, I would I would go down onto Mass Avenue and I would buy a bottle of sherry, and bring it back up to his office, and we would just sit around and talk. And the wealth of stories that he had was just was just wonderful. And I never realized at the time that there was a very strong Dharma connection between him and Richard Robinson, because of course they were both Canadians. All right, as I am too, and uh, Calgarians, as it turns out. And that was my connection to Leslie Kawamura, as a matter of fact, because Kawamura's father was the very first Buddhist teacher of Richard Robinson. Right, right. So it, it just seemed to to be so. Un- unusual that Leslie and I turned out to be great friends, and of course Leslie's family was so close to Nagatomi's family, so there was this wonderful little link there that that as a young man I didn't really know about, and only as I got older did I find out about it. Right. Well, the it, the field really is such a small world, you know. It's um, it, it it's still a relatively small uh, interest. I'm sure it was much smaller uh, 40 years ago. Um, there's there's still you know. Most people, I think, wind up knowing each other uh, after after long enough in the discipline. I think that's right. So let's talk about um, sort of some of the uh, the ideas and and themes that really kind of emerge in the the book and and the the stories that you're you're telling. One one of the things that comes up over and over, I think, is is the the two Buddhisms model, um, something that has really been important from the book. It seems it's been important, not just in your scholarship, but, but also in your life. Um, first, could you explain to our audience what you mean by the, the two Buddhisms? Okay. When, when I first coined the term, 
which was back in the in the late 1970s. <clears throat> it was simply just a reflection of what I was seeing as I went out to research what, what I was then calling American Buddhism. That's something that everybody said didn't exist. I, I was basically seeing two kinds of people involved in Buddhist practice. There were people who were, for lack of a better way of, of saying it then, were Asian Americans who either brought their Buddhism with them or were second, third, fourth generation um, Asian Americans whose families were, were Buddhist. And, and they had what, what I thought then was a very basic sound practice. It wasn't um, extravagant. It wasn't uh, open. It wasn't filled with meditation. It was what their family did. It was a function of their life. And on the other hand, I saw people who were then what, what we kind of euphemistically called Euro-Americans, which was a polite way of saying white Buddhists, because at that point there weren't very many black Americans or Hispanic Americans in, in Buddhism. And their Buddhist practice was oftentimes outrageous. And it almost always involved meditation and sometimes only meditation. So for me, the two Buddhisms were the Buddhisms of, of what we now call American convert Buddhists versus the Buddhism of Asian Americans, and now we call that um, Asian immigrant Buddhism. But I put that I put that aside simply as a, as a way of describing what I was seeing on the ground when I went out and did my research. Mm-hmm. It didn't it didn't start to come into play in a in a different and significant way until the early 90s when Tricycle Magazine appeared, and Helen Torkoff wrote an editorial, and I, I believe it was the second edition, second issue of Tricycle in which she basically said that it was um, middle-class white Americans who were shaping American Buddhism and that Asian Americans really didn't have much role in the development of what we could call American Buddhism. And that comment hit very hard with an 18th generation Jodo Shinshu priest named Ryo Imamura, who eventually became a professor of psychology on the West Coast, but whose father was was minister of the Berkeley Buddhist Church at a time when, when all the, the beats used to hang out there to find out and talk about Buddhism. And he, he was very much offended by her editorial and wrote a letter to the editor uh, expressing that, and she refused to publish the letter. Mm. And at that point, one of the people on the editorial board was Rick Fields, um, best known for his book, How the Swans Came to the Lake. And he and I had been friends for more than 15 years at that point. So he decided to ask me to write a tricycle article on the disconnect between Asian American Buddhism and Euro American Buddhism. And I think, I think he did that. I have no way of saying this. I think he did that because in my first book, American Buddhism, which was published in 1979, I probably wasn't as gracious to Asian Americans as I might have been and should have been. So I think he, he thought that maybe I would do a milder version of what Helen Torkoff did. And it didn't turn out that way because he didn't know that I, I knew Rio Imamura. And as Rio and I talked um, on the telephone then, because there was no email, I, I got an incredible second education about Asian American Buddhism from Rio Imamura. And I realized that a good bit of what I had been finding out in the late 70s wasn't really nearly as accurate as I thought it was. So when I wrote the article for Tricycle, I tried to write a really balanced article that showed that both Asian American Buddhists and Euro-American Buddhists were engaged in valuable practices, and they needed to learn how to talk better together. And I sent that off to Helen Porkoff, and she refused to publish it. Mm. And at that point, I think she said that she didn't see that it was anything new, but I thought it was very new because it it really moved far beyond what I had said in the early 1970s, so then the, that division of two Buddhisms, um, Asian, Asian immigrant Buddhist and American convert Buddhist, became sort of lines drawn in the sand. And it was my hope that those, those two traditions would learn to talk together and work towards a kind of a harmonious American Buddhism that had absolutely nothing to do with what, what your race was or what your prior religious tradition had been, that rather we could all see ourselves as Buddhists. And of course, that lasted for only a short time because not very long after I eventually published that article in Buddhist Studies Review, um, I gave a paper at the American Academy of Religion to talk about the two Buddhisms. And as soon as I was finished, 
a hand went up in the audience to ask questions, and the hand was that of Jan Nadier, who at that point was one of my very best friends in the world. So, of course, when you're at conferences, you usually call on people that you think are going to be friendly. And when I, when I called on her, it wasn't a, a friendly interchange. She basically told me that my two Buddhisms theory was wrong, that it was too simplistic, and that she had a three Buddhisms theory, which she put forth, and then the rivalry started between the two Buddhisms and the three Buddhisms. And, and as it turns out, I think if, if Jan had carefully read the, the article that I published, she would have seen that I also talked about three Buddhisms, but in a slightly different way than, than she did. But, but the lines had been drawn, and then people were coming down either on the two Buddhism side or the three Buddhism side. And I think what, what got lost in the shuffle as, as people finally began to realize that we were actually moving beyond that, and we were starting to move into a time where people talk together, is they were basically saying that, well, just the, the two Buddhism theory is wrong, the three Buddhism theory is wrong, and it was almost as, as if they were trying to rewrite the history of the 50s and 60s and 70s when, when those categories weren't wrong. Now, maybe they're not so good today, but that doesn't mean they weren't good when they were initially propounded. We've just moved beyond them somewhat. Uh, and, it, and it's funny because virtually all the conferences I go to now that deal with American Buddhism all talk about how wrong the two Buddhism theory is. Uh, in the book I mentioned uh, a conference that was held in, in Berkeley um, in March, I guess, 2010, and I think something like 18 of the 24 papers that were delivered talked about the two Buddhisms theory, and most of those just said it was wrong and outdated and not important. But nobody had, nobody had a new thing to say. Nobody could ever move beyond what I had said and, and offer something new. And I remember um, one of the off times of the conference, I ran into a, a very well-known scholar of American Buddhism who, brilliant man, I shouldn't mention his name, but as we were sitting and drinking coffee in a coffee shop, he said, um, this is a paraphrase, not a quote. He said, I just wish all these young folks would stop whining about the two Buddhism theory and either give us something better or shut up and move on to something else. And I think that that's very, very much the case. Um, so I think that's where we stand. The, the two Buddhism theory is probably outdated now, and we're moving into a situation where there are other ways to talk about how Buddhists in the United States get along together. Um, there was a wonderful paper at that conference that actually suggested that instead of talking about two Buddhisms, we should talk about denominalization. And if, if you could understand what the denomination was of an individual Buddhist, it didn't terribly much matter whether he or she was Asian American, Euro American, Hispanic American, but there were lots of similarities about the particular denomination that they practiced, and that might be a better way for Buddhists to talk together. Hmm. So I hope we're moving towards that now, but it does make me wince a little bit where wherever I go and people say, well, you know, that old two Buddhism stuff is really outdated. Well, of course it is. That's what's supposed to happen. Yeah, I was, was going to say, I mean, do, you, do you think that um, if it's started to become outdated uh, or has com become completely outdated now, that, that that's basically because the hope you mentioned has been realized that... Um, that Starting to be realized. They would come, or, yeah, it has started to be realized that, that the two Buddhisms would have basically come together to the point that the barriers between them broke down and... It's one I thing. hope so. I hope so. And in fact, uh, Shannon Hickey has, has actually written an article called Two Buddhisms, Three Buddhisms, and Racism. And she's, mm. she's pointed out that all of those characterizations, in fact, do smack a little bit of racism. And, and that's probably fair. I don't think the racism was intended when anybody proposed them. Certainly I didn't. But, but I, could, I could absolutely see that. And that maybe that's why we need to move beyond that, that kind of stuff and, and talk together. Now, some of the other alternatives, um, you may have come across the name of a very young uh, scholar named Jeff Wilson, who has yes. written lots of good things on American Buddhism, and he's, he's one of the, I guess, editors in, in the Tricycle family. And, and he said that maybe it was better if we, if we thought about Buddhism in terms of regionalism, because we haven't talked about that at all, and that maybe um, Zen Buddhists in, in the American South are very different than Zen Buddhists in San Francisco and that we should, we should also factor in some of those concerns because that will easily tell us at least as much about how Buddhism is being practiced here 
as what one's ethnicity might be or what their prior religious tradition might be. And I have a sneaking feeling, and maybe this is a, a little snotty on my part, um, but when he, first, when he first gave that paper, I was thinking, I think this is brilliant stuff. But in about 10 years, when the technology that's available to us is, has played out even more with, with YouTube and Facebook and, and tweeting and everything, that maybe rural Buddhists in the South are going to be more savvy about what Buddhism is because of their communication with city Buddhists who live in New York and San Francisco. And maybe people who live in Chicago will understand a little bit about other kinds of Buddhism by talking with other people, so that maybe at some point someone's going to walk up to Jeff and say, you know, that regionalism stuff that you talked about in 2010 was really spot on, but it's really old and outdated now. Or maybe, or, you know, maybe they'll be 20 out of 30 papers at the AAR written attacking the regionalism model. Yeah, and he's gonna, and I think if that happens, I hope it doesn't happen because he's a he's a swell guy and he's a great young scholar. But I think if it happens, he's gonna understand the twinge that that some of us who've been on the front end of this two Buddhism's argument um, have felt. Right. I think you know, there's to to slightly mix a metaphor. There's a lot of hay made in academia by beating dead horses. Um, it's a very sort of common way to set one's ideas up is to just set them in contrast to, to something else and, and if something's being attacked um, oh, I think you're it right. shows how influential that theory was and how, how much you know play it had gotten. I, I think you're absolutely right. There was a time in the, in the mid-70s during the, the second summer of Naropa Institute where Jan Nadier shared a house with my family because we were working on an article together about the beginnings of Buddhist sectarianism. And the article kind of took apart some of the great research of, of people like Andre Barreau, who was, for me, my hero in Buddhist studies. And it, it just really hurt me a lot to be able to necessarily have to say that, that I thought that, that we thought that, that Barreau's theories about the beginnings of Buddhist sectarianism were wrong. Because he was just such a great guy, and about oh, I don't know, it must have been five or six years after the article appeared, I got a, a piece of mail from Burrow that had an off-print of one of his recent articles, and inside of it was a, a handwritten note on a piece of stationery from his university that said, "Dear Professor Prebish, regarding your theory about Buddhist sectarianism, dot dot dot." Well, maybe. Best wishes, Andre Barreau. And when I saw the best wishes part, I thought, oh, just thank, thank goodness I didn't offend this incredibly brilliant, wonderful man. Um, at, least, at least he understood that scholarship moves forward. Uh, I don't know that we're very good at doing that, but he certainly was. That's, that's good to hear. It's, it's uh, good when, when people can take that. I guess the, the other thing about the, uh, the two Buddhism's model, it sounds like you had a certain um it played out in interesting ways in your your personal life in in that you know at at um you mentioned how sort of in the earlier article you were kind of more praising the the convert buddhists than the cradle buddhists or you know, however yep. one would draw the the distinction but then um later on um when when you were sort of moving around the country and and trying to be more than a a sangha of one as you as you put it um you, you it seems like you often found yourself more warmly welcomed by the uh, the cradle buddhists by the it seems to always be the case um, and and most recently in utah uh, i you, now, certainly Utah is not a state that's well known for its Buddhist population, um, to, to, say, to say the least. Right. Uh, but there, there are about two dozen Buddhist communities in, in Utah, and I, I made a strong effort to connect with them simply because I thought it would be interesting to find out about Buddhists in a place that I, I never imagined they would be. Uh, and invariably, uh, the people that befriended me the most were the people in the Jodo Shinshu community, Japanese American community, in in Utah, particularly in Ogden. Now the, they have three they have three temples. The main one is in Salt Lake City, and the minister is is Reverend Jerry Hirano, who's an incredibly bright guy and open-minded and vibrant. But interestingly enough, I spent more time with the minister's assistant from the Ogden Buddhist Temple, um, who was a fellow named Mike Monson, who had been born as a Mormon. Uh, mm -hmm. 
and he was just an incredibly inquisitive guy. And as years went on, he got more and more interested in Buddhism. And I met him when he was already retired. I guess he's now about 70 or 71. And we would get together almost weekly and just talk for hours. And he would invite me down to the Ogden Buddhist Church to, to talk to classes that he was running or to give, give lectures to the, to the people in the congregation on Sunday. And, and I don't think I can ever remember a time in my life where I was more welcomed in a Buddhist community than mm-hmm. that one. And it was, just, it was just wonderful. That was probably the hardest thing for me to leave in Utah because they were, they were so friendly. On the other hand, um, and maybe this isn't quite so nice, but early on in my time in Utah, I invited a very fine scholar named Steve Hine to come and lecture at, at Utah State University. Steve is one of the foremost Zen scholars in the world. And I thought it would be great, since he was coming to lecture, that I would invite Dennis Genpo Merzel Roshi, from the Salt Lake Zen Center. And I emailed him, we communicated. He said he would be delighted to come up and hear the lecture and that he was very happy to have lunch with us and attend the dinner in Heinz honor. And he never showed up for lunch, never showed up for the lecture, never showed up for dinner. And the next day I got an email that said, oh, sorry, I forgot. Hmm. And I thought that was in very poor taste. And I, I shouldn't say more about him because he's come under, thunder, under fire recently for some other things. But I thought that that was a very unwelcome approach to a new Buddhist in Utah who was pretty well known. And it was not very hospitable to Steve Hine, who has a wonderful reputation and is a great guy. Right, right. Um, although, and it's interesting in that story, um, just as you've told it now, how we already see the the two Buddhism's, two Buddhism's model breaking down with, with Mike Monson, um, you know, being someone who's involved in what would at one point have been sort of viewed as, as the Asian American Buddhist side, but you know, at least from the yeah. name, yeah. And from you know, having grown up Mormon, he's clearly not that. No, he's white. Right. Right. It's, um, and, uh, one of the things I've noticed um, in the book, you, you talk about uh, Buddhist practice quite a bit, and um, one, one of the things that sort of piqued my interest is you, you say uh, a couple of times that you think living the precepts is a more important form of practice than meditation, or at, at least as important. Um, could, could you say a bit more about that? Sure. Um, I, I think it's, it's probably unfair to credit me singly with, with saying that, because I think the person that said this before me is, is important to cite. The person that said this first, in a very explicit way, is Stephen Batchelor. Mm. And he, he, he wrote about what he called precepts as practice. And if you, if you play that out, then, then you, can, you can find that, that I affirm that as well. But my experience in visiting Buddhist communities around the country for 35 years is that when you were in convert communities, everything seemed tied up with, with meditation. Right. And some of those communities, they sat more than others, but it wasn't very uncommon to see that in, in many of them, you would sit an hour or two a day, and then you would get on with your life. And in many respects, you didn't necessarily buy into all the rest of Buddhism. Maybe you didn't even call yourself a Buddhist. That, that's a whole different issue, deciding who is and who isn't a Buddhist. But it seemed like the, the approach was that meditation would invariably bring you to nirvana almost immediately, because after all, we're Americans and we get what we want in two weeks and everything's fine. And I, I don't think it worked out that way. Whereas on the other hand, precepts are something that you don't do for an hour a day, or you don't do for two hours a day. If you do them properly, you do them all the time, 24 hours a day. Right. And I don't think it's an accident that as you watch people going through the Eightfold Path, that the meditation part of the path doesn't come until after you've really done a good job of perfecting your, your moral practice, so that when you do come to the point where you sit down on the cushion, you're not distracted by the problems of morality uh, in, involving killing and illicit sex and, and things like that. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite stories is that during the second summer of Naropa Institute, they had a, a program that they called Modules, and in that particular summer I was involved with the Buddhism module, and it meant that people studied Buddhism together, they took a course in Buddhism together, part of which I taught. They lived in the same apartment building together, they did sitting meditation together. And what I would oftentimes see is that after they would do their, their meditation in the evening, some of them would immediately go and hit the bars. Or some of them would go up on the roof of their apartment building and smoke dope. 
mm-hmm. or some of them would, would hook up. And it was very hard for me to understand why they were so motivated to do sitting meditation if it didn't factor into their life in, in a meaningful way to make them whole human beings and try to eliminate suffering. So for, for me, uh, being involved with the precepts was more important than meditative tradition. And I think that's why in the book I wrote about a piece of advice I got from Chagam Trungpa, which I think was the best spiritual um, antidote I, I'd ever gotten or diagnosis that I'd ever ever gotten. He said that you should only, he told me to stop sitting. Right. And he, at that point I had been doing sitting meditation for 10 years and I was sitting four hours a day with all day sits on Sunday. And he said, I think what you're doing is that when you sit on your cushion, you're withdrawing from the world rather than living in the world. And he said, you really do need to understand that your Buddhist life is lived in the world, not in, in isolation. And he said, I'm not telling you to give up meditation. I'm saying that you should use it when you begin to lose faith periodically. And he smiled and he said, and you will. He said, that's the time to go back to your cushion and renew your faith, but then get off the cushion and take the precepts out into the world. And, and I think that makes great sense. Do you, do you think that that might be why, uh, or one of the reasons why you've been better treated by, or be better received by cradle Buddhists than by, by convert Buddhists? Is that sort of Possibly, relative but they, lack of... I don't think that's something they necessarily know. If, if they all knew that about me, then I could say yes. But I think in many cases, um, the the... Asian immigrant Buddhists that I meet don't really or didn't really know very much about my background. So I think they just treated me better as a person because they were gracious human beings. Hmm. I, I'd like to say the other, but but I, I can't. Right. I mean, I, and it, it's interesting because when, when I first went to Utah, the one little Buddhist community in Logan, Utah, centered around the university called the Cache Valley Sangha, had a dinner for me to welcome me to the community. And I never imagined the fact, I wrote about this in the book, that after dinner, one of them said to me, well, tell us about your practice. And I basically told them how I got into Buddhism, how much I had practiced early on, and what I did now. And as soon as they heard that now the real substance of my practice was living moment to moment as a Buddhist in the world and not doing X number of hours or minutes of meditation a day, the, the little rumor that started circulating back to me within a couple of days was that Prebish isn't a real Buddhist because he doesn't sit every day. And that, that struck me as really shallow. shallow. They, didn't, they didn't care about the precepts. They, they cared about what they thought was cool in Buddhism, which was meditation. Right, right. And um, you, you also identify as a, as a scholar practitioner, and uh, you talk about that, that term a fair bit. Um, could you say something about what being a scholar practitioner, you know, with, a, with a hyphen, has meant for your scholarship and for your life? Yeah, it's it's been different as I went along. Uh, It would be necessary for me to say, in the beginning, I didn't tell people I was a Buddhist because I think as soon as they as soon as they learned I was a Buddhist, they thought I wouldn't have any objective ability as a scholar. So um, I I didn't tell people very often, and when when I did, I think it had some academic repercussions for me. Uh, But I think why why it's important is is that. North America, particularly, is not a very monastic culture. And I think whereas in Asia, the the monastic tradition uh, were people, monks and nuns, who were the culture bearers of Buddhism for the the general populace, and they were generally at that point very knowledgeable in the scriptures, we don't have that in the United States. There aren't very many monks, there aren't very many nuns. Until recently, there were hardly any nuns. And as a result, people who are interested in practicing Buddhism, and it doesn't matter whether we argue that there's one million or six million Buddhists in America, that's really beside the point. There has to be someone that imparts that tradition to the, to the lay practitioners. And I think what's happening is that the, the people that I've called scholar practitioners since the early 90s are the people that do that. They're not necessarily monks, although some of them, like Jose Cabazon and George Dreyfus, have been monks in their career. Uh, but for the most part, they're, they're not monastics now but they're really knowledgeable people who have been involved with tradition, who, who learned the tradition in the, in the classical philological way, who were deeply involved in Buddhist practice, but they're, they're also concerned talking to everyday folks. So they, they became, in a sense, the, the culture bearers 
for the secular tradition of Buddhism in the United States. And in that sense, being a scholar practitioner has been very important. I can say from the very beginning of my career at Penn State, once people did find out that I was Buddhist, invariably the one question that I would always get from them is, will you, will you teach me meditation? Or will you, will you teach me Buddhism? They, they recognize that as, as a scholar and a practitioner, I could help them explore what they needed to explore, irrespective of whether they called themselves Buddhist or whether they were what Tom Tweed called sympathizer or nightstand Buddhist. And that, that's an exciting issue, too. In fact, I think there was something just in the Huffington Post blog this morning about how you decide who really is a Buddhist. Mm. Yeah, that's that's always it's always a thorny question, I think. Uh, and you you take a position on it in the in the book as well. Well, I, I, when I when I started saying it for the first time, I, I took a great deal of heat for for what I said. Uh, and again, the idea wasn't altogether mine. I was pretty good friends with a fellow named Agehananda Bharati, uh, who was chairman of the anthropology department at Syracuse, uh, and he was a Hindu. His real name, I guess, was Leopold Fischer. Uh, but he wrote a book called The Light at the Center, in which he defined a mystic as someone who said they were a mystic. And they used that, that phrase, that I am a mystic, only when talking about the most significant enterprise in their life. And I thought that, that made great sense, applying it to the Buddhism that I was seeing in the 70s, because many of the people in America who thought of themselves as Buddhists took refuge, but, but some didn't take refuge. That was one of the classical ways of being Buddhist. So I, I started thinking about all these questions you might ask. How do you determine someone's a Buddhist? Does it mean they go to Zen Sashins? Does it mean they donate money to Buddhist communities? Does it mean that they attend Buddhist temple on a Sunday? Does it mean they read scriptures? Or like Tweed said, does it mean they had Buddhist books on their nights? What does it mean? Is there something we can use that will help us all define who is and who isn't. And that's when I picked up on Paradis' idea and said, a Buddhist to someone says, I am a Buddhist, when talking about their most significant enterprise. And as soon as I said that, everybody jumped all over me. And it wasn't until 20 years later when, when Tweed said it that people said, oh, that's pretty good. That makes great sense. And now that seems to be the standard identification for how you, you capture who is and who isn't. Yeah, it's certainly what I would have seen as as the the dominant paradigm for identifying who is an, and isn't a Buddhist uh, during the, the period that I've been in, in grad school. But it's, it's very interesting. I mean, just, just today, I, I have been reading a, a, a manuscript for a journal about people who have Jewish-Buddhist identity. And the, the manuscript is based on a doctoral dissertation that someone did, which was brilliant, at the University of, of Calgary. Her name was Nicole Lieben. Just a, a brilliant dissertation. But the article talks about the fact that many of the people from Jewish backgrounds who become involved with Buddhism do so because they don't see Buddhism as a religion. And therefore, it's possible for them to identify with different parts of Buddhism, particularly as meditation practice, but still preserve the parts of their background that were Jewish. And that raises, opens up a whole different series of questions about uh, not only how do we determine who is and who isn't a, a Buddhist, but what is religion? And right. that's an altogether different issue. Right. And, and yeah, and it, you know, it's, it seems, I mean, I, I think, you know, my, my impression of, of Judaism has been that, you know, at, at least in, in, um, the, in many strains of Judaism, you know, practice is really considered more important than belief. Um, that, you know, I, I think for, for, you know, for Orthodox Jews, you need to both believe and practice for, for um, you know, in, in the sort of most traditional way. For Reformed Jews, it's, you know, not particularly strict in either respect. But for conservative Jews who are in the middle, um, you know, it's important. You, you can believe whatever you want, but you have to practice. practice. Yeah. Um, and so, and that seems like it makes for a lot less difficulty with a kind of exclusive identity that, you know, as long as you take on the practices of another tradition in addition to the Jewish practices rather than instead of those practices, then... then it, it, it would be great if we, could, if we could all agree on what religion is, but I, I used to have this funny little game that I play with my classes where on the first day of class, I would ask someone sitting in the first row to give 
his or her definition of religion. And they could, I think they'd always be kind of caught short because it's not the sort of thing you'd expect a professor in a Buddhism course to be asking. But they'd, they'd give me a definition, and then I'd look at the person sitting next to them and say, how about yours, and how about yours? And we'd go around the whole room, and by the time we got to the back, we, we probably had 30 or 40 different definitions of religion. Right. And, and they were all pretty good. But, but they were all very different, reflecting all kinds of differences in culture and ethnicity and background and location and, and all of that. And that's part of what makes religion such a, a wonderful field for study. The thing that impacted me the most was one of, one of my early colleagues in Buddhist studies, a professor named Frederick Strang, who did a PhD at the University of Chicago but taught at SMU, said that in a book called, Under, it was then called Understanding Religious Life. Eventually the title was changed to Understanding Religious Man. But he said religion is a means to ultimate transformation. And people think that sounds very simple, but basically he was simply saying that in order for something to be a religion, it has to have some notion of ultimate reality, irrespective of whether that's a deity or deities or impersonal absolute or nirvana or something like that but it also has to have a, a means of attainment, and it didn't matter whether it was ritual prayer, yoga, meditation, or whatever. There had to be some means for individual practitioners to reach that ultimacy. And then if they did reach it, that it would utterly transform them, um, usually defined in some sort of moral way, but specifically different in, in traditions. And that was really a nice umbrella kind of definition that worked for all the traditions without pigeonholing them into situations that were very uncomfortable. Right, right. So, um, getting back to to Buddhist studies, um, you've you've been involved a lot with uh, technology in Buddhist studies as well. You've mentioned technology a couple of times in the uh, interview already, and and comes up quite a bit in in the book. Um, could you you talk a bit about um, what you think uh, technology has contributed to the field so far? First of all, well, sure. I, I think it would be fair to say that I got in backwards. Uh, I I was terrified of computers. Uh, there, there's no no question about that. Until the until the early 90s, I, I was just terrified. You literally had to tie me down and make me squirm to do email. But in 1994, uh, I wanted to start along with a friend named Damien Keown at the University of London. Wanted to start a journal on Buddhist ethics. And we got kind of a rude awakening to find out that no publishers, including the one at Penn State Press, wanted to start a journal that was small and wouldn't, wouldn't be cost-effective. And at that point, Damien Keown said, why don't we do it online? And I said, gee, that's great, but I had no idea what that meant. And we decided to create the first online peer-reviewed journal in the field of religious studies. And it was shocking for me because I didn't have a clue how to do that. I didn't know what the World Wide Web was. I didn't know what FTP was. I didn't know what Gopher was. I didn't know any of that stuff. So I got kind of a crash course by Keown and one of my colleagues at Penn State. And we started out publishing the Journal of Buddhist Ethics online in 1994. And that, for me, was the takeoff point of beginning to see how much the world was going to be connected through technology and that that would be a remarkable way to create a new aspect to the Buddhist Sangha. That what, what I started to call, it wasn't my word, but the Cyber Sangha was a way that would go beyond just monks and nuns and laymen and, and, and laywomen, but rather it could connect everyone in a global Sangha um, just by sitting in front of a computer and clicking a mouse. And I think we've simply escalated onward from there to the point that now everybody does that. I mean, they, when, when you think of the incredible world of, of Facebook and tweeting and YouTube and email and manuscripts online, the communication is just instant. And the latest ex extent that we've taken it is we've, we've actually started an e-book project to try to save people who, who do academic courses in religion uh, money by creating e-books that are cheaper than traditional print versions of textbooks. So it's, it's just ex exploded ex exponentially everywhere. Can, can you see uh, future directions emerging for technology and Buddhist studies, things that you know, might be happening five, ten years down the line? Well, I'm, I'm afraid I might, I might embarrass myself by saying this because maybe it's already happened, but I think there's one place in the book where I, I told a little story about uh, a bunch of us young, young fellows sitting in the basement of the student union at the University of Wisconsin in 1976 when the International Association of Buddhist Studies launched its, its 
professional society. And we were jokingly saying that wouldn't it be great if someone could program a computer with all the grammars of Sanskrit, Pali, Chinese, Tibetan, Japanese, and all the dictionaries of those traditions, and then we could just feed in texts, and the computers would, would spit out absolutely fantastic, impeccably done, multilingual versions of texts like the Lotus Sutra and the Prajnaparamita Sutra and Vinaya text. And at, the, and at that point, I, I never even thought of the fact that we could have all those computers networked. Uh, and everybody, when we started talking about this, everybody laughed because at that point, none of us had, had ever touched a computer. Right. And uh, it wouldn't be crazy to imagine that that, that wish of, of having computer-based translations of multilingual versions of Buddhist sutras uh, would be in the near future. And for all I know, I may be embarrassing myself because maybe they've already done it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't... I'm not aware of, of a project to specifically do those those kinds of multilingual translations yet, but certainly, um, you know, many of the the pieces of that puzzle I think are starting to be oh, yeah. to be put together. That you know, there, people are there, doing there, a lot of there are databases of of texts that that are online in in the various languages, and there are, there are leaders in the, in doing this. Lou Lancaster, for a long time, who was one of the people who preceded me at the University of Wisconsin, has been an absolute pioneer in working on getting various kinds of Buddhist texts online. And now the person who, who started and, and runs H Buddhism, Chuck Muller in, 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 in Tokyo, has, has been remarkable in, in putting up databases of, of various language materials for, for people to simply have access to, that you just go to the site and you can, you can download virtually anything. So I, I think there's no limit to where this is going to go. That's it. I quite exciting um, so let me uh, we've taken up a fair bit of your time let me uh, close by asking what, what you're working on now in your, your next projects okay well uh, on, the, on the short haul um, at this year's American Academy of Religion meeting there was going to be a panel to honor Leslie Kawamura who was one of the most eloquent Buddhist and Buddhist studies scholars um, I've ever met, and he passed away recently. So I'm part of a panel that's doing a tribute to him, so I have to do that. And just before then, given our previous conversation, um, two wonderful young scholars, Greg Grieve and Dan Weidlinger, are putting together a conference called Digital Dharma hmm. that will be held at the University of California Chico campus just before the American Academy of Religion annual meeting. So I'm, I'm actually doing a, a paper there, uh, a public talk on Buddhism and the Internet, and also a, a paper on the founding of the Journal of Buddhist Ethics. But in the long haul, there's, there's two other projects that I'd really like to work on. One is something involving a particular Buddhist named Upali. I don't know if you know who that is. Is that um, one from the Upali Paripurcha Sutra? Yeah. Or, yeah. Upali was the, the first Vinaya Tara in the Buddhist tradition. He was the one who recited the Vinaya at the First Council, presumably, if, if the First Council wasn't fiction and, and really happened. Uh, and I had started out to do my last sabbatical at Penn State on a biography of Upali and how that followed up with, with the generation of, and generations of Vinayadharas that followed from him. And I got, I got sidetracked in the beginning of, of the sabbatical by the issue of Buddha's de death and dating. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that, that the, the new and latest theories about, about Buddha's lifetime seem to now suggest that all of the dating we've had for him that usually sets his dates at something like 563 to 483 BC are wrong, and that it's very likely that Buddha, Buddha lived one generation later. And I got sidetracked in, in that and wrote, a, an I hope, an interesting story called Cooking the Buddhist Books, Dating the Historical Buddha. Um, and, it, and it kept me from doing the Upali project that I really wanted to do. So I'm hoping that I can get back and do this Upali project in the future. And I would like to write one, one last book on American Buddhism that talks about where it's going in, in, in the future and takes into account some of the work of these bright young scholars like, like Jeff Wilson and Shannon Hickey and John Harding uh, and Alexander Susi and, and so forth, who are really taking us in altogether new, new directions and factor into that the role, some of the role that other additional parts of technology, like blogs, are playing um, 
in, in the developmental process and then just sort of put it out on the line and presume that I won't know whether I was right until I'm long dead. No, that sounds like a great legacy. Um, th- thanks very much, uh, Chuck. Really enjoyed this interview and um, hope you have as well. And uh, we'll t- uh, great, to do- great to talk and uh, take care. Thank you. I've enjoyed this too. You've been listening to Charles Prebish discussing his book, An American Buddhist Life, on New Books in Buddhist Studies on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Amod Lele. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.